Hello and welcome to Behind the Bible with Pastor Liz. We are going to look at our scripture for this upcoming Sunday here at Concord. We are continuing our march through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in the third chapter. The third chapter is the chapter that uh, sees our first appearance of the adult Jesus. Chapters one and two are leading up are the birth of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, and then his infancy and toddlerhood. We hear about the wise men. Now in chapter 3, we have an adult Jesus who appears on the scene. But before we can get to Jesus, we have to talk a little bit about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is some people's favorite character, but he is the source of quite a lot of drama in the church and has been since, I guess, he appeared in the desert. Now, Luke tells us that Elizabeth is his mother, and Elizabeth and Mary are cousins. And so John and Jesus are cousins, third cousins, I think, second cousins. I've never been sure how that works. I think second cousins. And that when John is a little baby in Elizabeth's uh, womb, Mary comes to visit Elizabeth. And John recognizes the the prenatal John recognizes Jesus in the womb of Mary and leaps for joy. And so this is taken as a precursor for what John's going to do when John is an adult. John moves out to the wilderness. He is in the desert, uh, the for real desert. He's out way, way out near the Jordan River, which is um, actually desert in most in some areas. He is baptizing people in the river. It's a baptism for repentance. Baptism was an Old Testament practice. It has been something that Jews had done, Hebrews had done for years and years, thousands of years. And it was a cleansing act. It was because you were unclean in some way. And so they, you would be sent out to wash in the river. We hear a story, we talked about this story in worship a couple months ago, of Naaman, the king who has leprosy, and Elijah shows up and tells him to wash in the river seven times and that his leprosy will be cleared. And he's skeptical, but he does it. And so baptism is something that existed for a very long time. John and Jesus are going to repurpose it and reclaim it. Now, John is a member, is likely, probably, a member of a desert sect called the Essenes. The Essenes were extreme extremists i guess not but not like dangerous extremists they were people who were really 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 dedicated we probably call them like orthodox they took everything very seriously and john took his role as the baptizer as the precursor to jesus very seriously he is intentionally modeling himself after the prophet elijah his clothes of camel hair are exactly the same as Elijah and Elisha's clothes are described in their respective books, First and Second Kings. He eats bugs, locusts, and honey, which is what Elijah and Elisha ate while they were in the desert. He is intentionally setting himself up as the return of Elijah, the, the expected return of Elijah, and therefore making what is called an eschatological claim. Eschatology is the study of the end times. And so John is saying that he is the return of Elijah. And all of the people, all the Jews who studied the Bible, expected the return of the Messiah to be precursed, but to be um, 
signaled by two things. One is the return of Elijah, and the other is the return of Moses. This is important. John is claiming that he is the return of Elijah the prophet. And Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the return of Moses. And we'll see this very evidently in the Transfiguration in a couple weeks. John is trying to be Elijah. He wants you to think of him as Elijah. This causes some trouble. There's two other sects, there's really three other sects that are operating in Israel at the time. The Sadducees, we're fairly familiar with, they're what we would consider traditionally traditionalists. I've heard them called conservatives. I don't like that because I think it puts a political spin on it, but they're traditionalists. They want everything to stay exactly the way it always has been. They're enforcing the the laws. They're wearing the clothes. They're doing the things. They are saying that you have to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They are dedicated to the rules as it stands, to the order as it stands. And the Sadducees are going to die out. They are crushed in 70 AD when Jerusalem falls, because if you have to worship in the temple and the temple is destroyed, then what is the purpose of your religion anymore? In contrast are the Pharisees. And in some places, again, I've heard them described as liberal, but I think, again, that puts a political spin on it. That's not necessarily true. The Pharisees are trying to figure out a way to coexist with Rome. They are trying to make it so that the people of Israel who want to participate in the Jewish faith can continue to be members of the Roman society. And so they are doing a couple things. They decentralize the role of the synagogue, of the temple, and, and set up synagogues as equally important worshiping communities. They are liberalizing some of the rules so that it, they're easier to follow, so that you can adapt yourself to society, to the Roman rules, so that you can participate equally with Roman citizens in the society that they're, they're finding themselves to be a part of. John is an Essene. Now, the Essenes are, yeah, they're purists, I guess. It's even more than traditionalists. They don't want anything to do with anything. They don't want to accommodate Rome. They don't want to accommodate um, the more liberal factions of the Jewish faith. They want to withdraw to the wilderness and to live by themselves in their little their little group of people who can maintain purity, who can maintain dedication in the most extreme form to the Jewish traditions as seen through the prophets. And then you have the last group, which Paul, the apostle Paul is a part of, which are the zealots. And the zealots are extremists in the violent sort. They are going around, um, chopping people's ears off, chopping people's hands off, um, you know, turning people over to the Romans to be crucified. They are extremists to the point where they feel like if you are not following the rules, you should die that the only punishment that you properly receive for being disobedient is death. And so what we see in the beginning of this chapter, chapter three, is really a fight between these four different groups about who is the rightful heir, who has the right claim to the traditions, who is the one who is most loyal to the Old Testament scriptures, who is doing what they are supposed to be doing according to the rules of the Old Testament, who is the rightful heir of that tradition. And so John is standing in the wilderness saying he is the rightful heir. He is pointing to the Messiah. He is claiming that mantle of, I know the future. I know what's coming. I am the prophet. 
And the Pharisees and the Sadducees have a lot invested in John not being correct. But they want to sort of bring him in, right? If we can bring him in, if we can make him part of the flock, if we can make him part of our, within our stream, then maybe he'll stop being so noisy. Maybe he'll stop causing so much trouble. <laughs> and so they show up at John's place and they say, you know, we want to be part of this group too. Will you baptize us? They want to have their cake and eat it too. And John is having nothing of it. He's not, he's not doing it. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Where have you been? And he also realizes that they're not interested in changing their ways. They're not actually coming for repentance. They're not actually coming to be baptized because they are seeking the true meaning of baptism. They're coming so that John can whitewash their positions, so that John can put um, a seal of approval on who they are, and they can go back to being the way that they always have been. So John attacks them because there's a longstanding distrust, a longstanding rivalry, a longstanding uh, argument amongst them about what it means to worship and live correctly if you are a first century Jew. And as we'll see on Sunday, and as we'll talk about on Sunday, Jesus is having none of that. He's not interested in those fights. So stay tuned. Come back on Sunday. Um, <laughs> we'll talk more about it. But what's really important for us to, to see at this point is the way that we have weaponized baptism. What we have done is we have fought literal, there have been literal wars fought over what baptism means and who gets to be baptized and what requirements it takes to be baptized and who's in and who's out. And we've created all of these denominations primarily over arguments about what baptism means, about who is who gets to be baptized and what is included in that. And so you have some groups who are arguing for believer's baptism, that you need to be old enough to make a claim for Jesus, and that you need to be old enough to know what you're doing, and that after you are baptized, you need to change your life. Your life should be different, that you should be cleaned, that you are baptized for repentance of sins. And the only way for you to do that is to be old enough. Now there's some argument about whether 13 is really old enough or eight is old enough. How old is that? I don't know that at eight years old, I could have made a, that kind of a salvific claim on my baptism, but that's not an argument for me because that's not within my tradition. We don't have that argument. <laughs> that's, that's something else for them to figure out, I guess. But, or there is the other, there are other tradition set of traditions, which is to baptize infants saying that you are in baptism, you are claimed as a child of God, that in that moment, the spirit descends upon you and the voice of God says, this is my child whom I love and you are claimed as mine. The problem here is in this text, we see both. John the Baptist is baptizing for the repentance of sins. Jesus is being baptized as a symbol of an inclusion in a community and a claiming by God who says, you are my child, and I love you. 
And so there's a good argument for both. There's a good argument for both. And so all of this fighting and all this yelling and all this anger about who's right and who's wrong misses the point of baptism. Misses the point. Baptism is about a step, about a choice that is made. It's about entering into the water and the work that the water does, that the Spirit does for you. Baptism is about God's action for you in your life. And whether you are 40 years old and fully submerged in a river, or whether you are four weeks old and held in your parents' arms and asked to be claimed by God, the point is God. That God is the one who does the work. That God is washing you, that God is cleaning you, that God is taking away the burden of sin from you. And God is claiming you as a child of God. And I wonder if all of this arguing and fighting and yelling about baptism doesn't just put us right back in that place where we're calling each other broods of vipers and distrusting one another. And if we couldn't take a better example, a better lead from Jesus, who says, I don't want none of this. I don't want none of this. I just need to be baptized so I can be claimed by God. How often do we miss the forest for the trees? God bless. There's a place I know for certain I will someday see when I lay down my burden and look on.